The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome to episode 132 of the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. I am your host, Jason A. Meiske, bringing you yet another fascinating author interview and sample chapter, and this week is no exception. We are having a wonderful discussion with speculative fiction author Phil M. Cohen. Phil and I have a very interesting chat about subjects within writing about what does it mean to be human, uh, the inclusion of ourselves within our writing, what is midrash, <laughs> which I don't know if you know what that is, but you're going to find out today. That's a That was a new one for me. And, uh, you know, and Phil gives us some really great advice, uh, including one of, the, one of the things he said that I really, really stood out to me, which was uh, the process of revision is the bridge between first exposure and the second exposure. I love that. Love that. That was really great. You know, and he has so many things that I just found fascinating, things that uh, really spoke to me, and I think you're going to really, really love this interview as much as I did. So all that and more is coming up here in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, <laughs> I'm so happy to share that I'm, I'm building this up as if I have big news, but I really don't. But I had a breakthrough this past weekend with my my current novel, my next novel, uh, Novel Idea, uh, the, which is the book title. And, you know, there for a while, I'd, I've been telling you I've been doing really well with the edits, and I have been. I've been doing very well. But I came across a chapter uh, here a while back, and I've been kind of avoiding it because <laughs> during the first draft, I, I wrote a chapter from a different point of view, from a different character's point of view. And, you know, and I did that, I guess, for effect during the uh, first draft process, and that's fine. But going back and uh, looking at it later on, I realized, yeah, this doesn't work. I've got to change this. And I uh, I did some work on it over the weekend and uh, rewrote that chapter. I was very proud of myself that uh, I rewrote it, and it, I really struggled. I mean, this was this was really trying to squeeze water out of a stone, trying to get this done. But I was so happy. I finally got it done. I scrolled down the page a little bit more. And because I had a scene break that I wrote myself too, and I don't know what what I wasn't sure what that scene break was for. I'd always just skipped over this chapter. But what do you think was on the other side of that scene break? <laughs> I had already rewritten the chapter previously, and uh, and I did this from the correct point of view, and I entered some information that was slightly different from what I just finished writing. So, lo and behold, I had to sit down with two revised chapters from the correct point of view and decide which one do I like better, which one am I going to go with, and ultimately I ended up writing it all over again, combining the two. So, that was that was a heck of an afternoon, but, uh, but I really liked the final result. I think the chapter finally came out... Um, I do worry now. I'm looking forward to my beta readers because I'm I, I'm worried that maybe I'm giving away too much information um, in this chapter. I may have to back off a little bit, but still, you know, I'm very happy about it. And you know, doing this, 
getting that done, it has really energized me. Uh, you know, yesterday I got up and I mean, I just, within 30 minutes, I went through and revised and edited another chapter. So I am possibly, I'm skeptically, uh, positive, <laughs> if that's even a, the correct phrasing, that by the end of this month, I'll have this, all of my edits done and I'll have this over to my beta readers, which means September, I'll be able to put up a pre-order and uh, release the release novel idea in October, a full, oh gosh, year and a half after I said it would be out. But, you know, que sera, it's, uh, it is what it is. And sometimes, sometimes we just can't help, you know, the, the story will be ready when the story's ready, right? But anyway, but you know, I'm doing all of this. <laughs> Check out this lead-in. I'm doing all of this on my favorite writing software, Scrivener. <laughs> That's right. Uh, longtime sponsor of the show and uh, great, great friends of the show. Scrivener writing software made for writers by writers. I love them. I have them on my laptop. I have them on my phone, on my tablet. So anywhere I go, I can pull up the story right where I left off. Um, oddly enough, I haven't downloaded it yet to my brand new desktop computer, but uh, I will be, I will be doing that soon. Right now I'm just leaving it, the new desktop only for uh, podcasting, but it'll change. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, Scrivener, it's, it's fantastic. I love being able to pull up, you know, when I was doing that editing, I was able to pull up both versions and go back and forth. I didn't have to scroll down. Okay. And I come back up. Okay. Scroll back down, you know, and it crossed my mind. Maybe I should print these out and look at them. And now it was just better to just pull them up side by side and look at them as I rewrote the uh, the scene. Hey, listen to this advertisement and hear how you can save 20% on your own desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. Yes, indeed, Scrivener, it, it's the way to go. I also want to thank a longtime sponsor going all the way back to the beginning, You Store All out of Warrensburg, Missouri. They are the premier location for all of your self-storage needs. With two locations, both of them offering climate control and non-climate control, fully fenced-in facilities, private gated access, and more than 60 cameras recording 24 hours a day, they are a clean and green facility. Now, why green? Well, it's because they're running both facilities off of solar power and high-tech LED lighting in all of their buildings and uh, area lighting. So... Check them out online at ustoreall.net for more information. That is spelled the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L dot net. 
my very first podcast network that I joined over a year ago now, a year and a half ago, Pop Goes the Culture Network. They are a fantastic service with about half a dozen shows over there like The Amazing Nerd Show, Fanatics and the Fan, The Way Awesome Show, and more. Not to mention their flagship show, Pop Goes the Culture Podcast, which uh, is on a slight hi- hiatus right now, getting things prepared for the, uh, you know, they took a break for the end of summer and uh, getting things ready for the fall to figure out what they're going to do. But make sure you're clicking that link in the show notes so you can get on over to the website at popgoesaculture.com and learn more about all of those shows and more because there's also articles, blogs, and all sorts of fun things to read at the website, uh, including every one of my episodes. (laughs) So check it out online or click that link in the show notes for more. I also want to thank my newest podcast sponsor that I'm so happy to be a part of, Project Entertainment Network, with more than 30 shows. Yes, more than 30, and I'm always going back on it. Is it 30? Is it 35? I actually counted it the other day, 34, currently, 34 shows, and growing (laughs) over at the network. Shows like Your New Opinion, the Armcast Dead Sexy Podcast, which I've been a guest on, Hard at Work, Hash Time. Hobbies include writing, matters of faith, monster attack, and so, so many more. Make sure you click the link in the show notes for more, and check out this advertisement for one of those amazing shows. Every person's story has something to teach us. How others view life, how obstacles are overcome, how joy is felt, how fears are faced, how love is expressed. The Matters of Faith podcast explores individual stories of people's lives, and how faith plays a part. It may not be your story, but it may help shape yours. The Matters of Faith podcast with Jay Wilburn is on Project Entertainment Network. Such a great show. I I listen to just about every show on the network, so give them a try. You know, go in there, click that link in the show notes, go on over, Check out each and every one of those shows, even the ones that you think you might not listen to. Give them a give them a chance, you know. Try a, try one or two episodes to see what you think, and I'm th- I think you're gonna probably uh, enjoy it and end up downloading more. So, anyway, without further ado, let's hop on over to our interview with speculative fiction writer Phil M. Cohen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week, we are sitting down with a very unique author who I cannot wait to get to know a little bit better along with you. My guest is Phil M. Cohen. He is an award-winning author and ordained rabbi who holds a PhD in Jewish thought and an MFA in fiction. His first novel, Nick Bones Underground, may be the first speculative fiction novel penned by a rabbi. Mr. Cohen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Nice to be here. I am so happy to have you here, and your story is very, very fascinating to me, so I cannot wait to dive into this. What what, what brought you to fiction, given your, your history as a rabbi? Well, um, I've, always, I've, I've always done some writing here and there, um, playing around with it, wanting to do it after college, but uh, deciding to move on to move on to other profession and then becoming a rabbi. I didn't want to, I didn't intend to be a rabbi right away out of college, but got to it not too long after college. But uh, a couple of things from at least my perspective as being a rabbi 
Uh, one is that, uh, you know, rabbis are always called upon to interpret biblical passages creatively. One form of it is called midrash. And there's a, an old body of literature that's filled with different kinds of creative interpretations of the biblical text. But then, you know, in recent years, in recent decades, we've also done our own midrash, taking biblical passages and playing around with them to extract new meaning and so forth. But in addition to that, I've just, I guess I've always enjoyed writing uh, while I was doing my doctorate, the book that eventually became Nick Bones Underground um, began. I wrote a, at 150 pages as a way of as, as a way of getting some relief from writing my doctoral dissertation, and I let it sit for a while. And I picked it up some years later, and I saw that I liked it. So I pursued writing it. I decided to get a Master of Fine Arts, which was available on a part-time basis, and um, it, it just kind of fits together. The the, the book is, a, I think, a pretty fun ride, Nick Bones Underground, but it also has some serious themes that um, are not too far away from my concerns as a rabbi, themes of being what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a religious person, is redemption possible? These, theme, these are themes in the book that don't, that don't drive the book into deadly seriousness, but they're there as concerns of the book and of concerns of the, the narrator, the book is told in first person. And the, uh, the second character in the book is a disembodied AI computer who takes on the name Maggie. And so she, she assumes gender. So gender is, is an issue, at least in passing in this book. Um, and she's also, got a, she's also got a pretty quick wit about her and uh, asks some serious questions. But she's, she's, she's the main character, Nick Friedman's constant companion throughout the book. So right now I'm working as a rabbi and I'm writing as Phil M. Cohen. So the two seem to go together, at least in my particular personality. <laughs> well, where did uh, where did an idea for this come come to you? Is it something like did you have a a previous love for fiction and and science fiction or speculative fiction previous to this? Yeah, I wrote I, I read a lot of speculative fiction, particularly when I was younger. But but over the years, a lot of it, and I love reading fiction. Where the idea came was an evolution, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure we've got the time to go through it. The, the original book took place in real time. And, and then, I, then I read a book uh, called The Philosophical Investigation, um, which took place kind of in the near future. And I liked the way it felt. I said, hmm, maybe I can apply that kind of style and, and uh, approach to, to, to Nick Bones. And then it just kept going. I, the process of creativity, the process of you know, writing oneself into a corner and then writing oneself out of the corner. Uh, you, you read about in a lot of people's writings about the nature of writing. Uh, and so it's not my own particular conundrum. It's one way that, that writers find themselves writing. So I can't say like, you know, how this came to that and that came to this. It, uh, it, it just sort of flowed in a variety of different, out of a variety of different directions. Um, I, I, I heard somebody say that the process of revision is the process of making what you wrote look like you knew what you were talking about from the beginning, which, uh, <laughs> you know, over the years, this took a long time to write. My, my sequel is not going to take anywhere near as long to write. But it was a pro process of learning, of experimenting, of playing with ideas, of integrating things that occurred to me along the way. Um, and 
hopefully the whole thing holds together. I got I got an award for the Jewish Book Council for this book, so some group of people thought that it made sense, which made me very happy, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and that's uh, what I've found in the past, and it's been a common theme amongst novelists or authors, is that uh, the characters just kind of, they seem to come out of that ether or you have the story and the character just kind of reveals themselves to the author. And it sounds like that's uh, somewhat uh, the, the same thing that's happened here, which I find very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I would say for myself, it's a combination of that plus going into the project with some, with some basic idea. But yeah, the, char- the characters, I've had that experience. The characters take on a life of their own and the world takes on a life of its own. And there had been times when I, you know, sort of put the writing down for a while uh, for one reason or another. And when I decided to go back to it, I was afraid, you know, I, I, I would have lost the whole ambiance of the thing. But happily, it didn't happen. You know, I'd pick up the text and maybe an hour would go by and I'd get myself acclimated to the world that I'd built and, and I'd get back into it. And like, yeah, the, the characters take on a life of their own and the interaction between characters take on lives of their own. Though there's always, I always reserve the, the right to, uh, to, go, you know, to go back and revise or take this or that out. And especially under the tutelage of a good editor. If a good editor doesn't, has a suggestion or a criticism of what I've done, and I agree with what the person says. You know, I could I could change the character. So th- so there is there is a critical factor involved. It's not simply that you sit down at the computer and the, the the image of the character or characters emerge and they start dancing, and all you're doing is writing down the dance. It's it's a it's a more um, it's a more symbiotic process than that. But, okay. but, what you say, but what you're saying is definitely part of it. And that's, and that's the fun part. The character ends up doing <laughs> something that you didn't expect that he or she would do. Yeah. Yeah. One of your characters, the, uh, the AI Maggie, who you, you noted a while ago, she is also one who uh, people have been reviewing, talking about her, her, how funny she is. How does, how do you use the humor throughout your novel? I mean, I mean she's a truth teller. She's, she's a more honest character than the main character. And a lot of her humor is in the form of, of kind of sardonic remarks that, that reveal the truth of something. So I would say that's part of it. And part of it is simply that uh, I want people to smile when they're reading it. And she's, I'd say she's, I, I made her to be funny. And a lot of readers agree with me. In fact, some readers think that she's a better character than the main character. <laughs> Um, I, I, I had one. I had one Amazon reviewer criticize the book for not having robust female characters, but the reviewer I think misses the point that although this character is disembodied, she's definitely female, and and that and that, that comes through in a number of different ways throughout the book. So she's a she, she's a female character who knows herself, knows who she is, and um, has this capacity, as I say, for making sardonic remarks that. That, that usually work. She also thinks of herself as being Marlena Dietrich. So throughout the book, uh, various images of Marlena Dietrich will appear on the screen in which she's, in, in which she's embedded. Um, and, and that was sort of fun too, because I, I would uh, go online and find pictures of Marlena Dietrich throughout her, throughout her life and do my best to describe them as on the screen. And anybody 
anybody who might be familiar with uh, with Marlene Dietrich might recognize the picture from the way I describe it. In the in the sequel, by the way, Maggie chooses not to use Marlene Dietrich as her avatar so much, because at the end of the book she converts to Judaism. So so the the character she em, she emulates or who is her avatar is Barbara Streisand because Barbara Streisand is Jewish. Um, so that's 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 sort of a that's sort of a continuing joke. <laughs> I I love how you've been able to incorporate your faith into the novel while not being heavy-handed over it as, as well. You've been able to give a um, a message of hope with it. How how important was that to you? Well, it has a it has a happy ending. Here's here's one of the conundrums of the story. Throughout much of the book, maybe the first half, Nick and Maggie, have, well, they dialogue throughout the book, but they have dialogues in which Maggie asserts that she's a person and, and Nick continually attempts to prove that she's not a person uh, for one reason or another. You know, what, what, you know she, doesn't, she doesn't have a body, so she can't do anything that a, a, an embodied person does and that sort of thing. And she's, she was created and not, uh, and not born naturally. And a variety of other things like that. Some, you know, some have some technical uh, validity to them, and others are just uh, my own non-scientific attempts to have this dialogue, but to make this difference. But by about the middle of the book, Nick acknowledges that she's a person, and about three quarters of the way through the book, Nick acknowledges that he's in love with her, and at the end of the book, there are intimations that they're actually going to become a couple. And, and, and the character who's the narrator, as I said, it's in, told in the first person, ruminates as to how that could possibly work. Um, and, and it's left hanging. That, that doesn't get resolved. And it doesn't get resolved right away in the sequel either, at least at the beginning. Um, so she converts to Judaism. And, uh, and, and Nick, Nick, who is a very, she, he's actually very uh, antagonistic to religion. That antagonism softens. Uh, a bit by the end of the book, but it doesn't dissipate. He's still antagonistic. Uh, and there, there are kind of two villains in the book, and they both get dispatched uh, in, in the book. So, and, 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 one, and one of the villains is an electronic, uh, an electronic thing, the embodiment of a, of a famous rabbi who died. And the other is Nick Friedman's uh, best friend from high school, um, which I'm kind of, that's, I'm kind of giving away something of the book, but the book, but, what, but whether they are actually dispatched or not uh, remains open. So one should read the book anyway, even though I gave away something. In the end. <laughs> yeah, it's my my wife is one who she loves spoilers. For her, she says that that helps relieve the, the anxiety. Yeah, it relieves the anxiety she has so that she can enjoy the ride. If she knows in advance uh, what's going to happen, then she can enjoy everything else. So that would be. <laughs> I, I think that'll be a, something, hopefully there's lots of people out there who have that same feeling to know a little bit of something about how the book ends up, but still they can enjoy the ride. Well, I hope so. I, I've gained, I have to say, this being my first novel and coming to it sort of, you know, in, in, in the latter stages of middle age, um, there's a great deal of insecurity about doing this, but I've received sufficient uh, reviews and sufficient endorsements uh, and that and that award from the Jewish Book Council, which for people who aren't uh, familiar with the Jewish Book Council, it's a pretty big deal. 
gave me the confidence that I produced something that's worth worth taking a look at. Uh, available at Amazon, uh, Nick Bones Underground, and uh, Phil M. Cohen. Yeah, and, and I, that's an interesting point here too. So, as a first-time novelist, I um, I know we have a lot of listeners who are aspiring authors or uh, soon-to-be first-time published authors. What kind of advice can you give them as a first-time author yourself? Well, I can give two different kinds of advice. First, just keep at it. Don't be discouraged. Second, related to the first is don't be afraid to revise because you have to revise. Any writer, I think, has the experience of one day writing something, writing three pages, five pages, and thinking, oh, yeah, this is genius. And then looking at it two days later and saying, no, this is just really awful. <laughs> well, the process of revision is the bridge between the first experience and the second experience. And it's a continual process. In fact, sometimes you can get a little obsessive about it. And, you, and one needs to realize when to stop and be satisfied with what you got. Also, in that same vein, working with a good editor really helps. Now, if you're being published by a publisher, they'll provide an editor. Uh, if you're self-publishing, it really behooves an author to find a conceptual editor. I'm not talking about a copy editor who can give you really good feedback, which, which you ought not be afraid of accepting or rejecting. But the other part, and this is why I'm on this podcast, is because unless you're Stephen King, you're Stephen King published by a major publisher, ain't nobody going to do your marketing for you, or they're going to do very little marketing for you. Uh, you got to do your own marketing. So um, for better or worse, that's something any author, I think, needs to look into if you want to sell more than 200 books once the book is published. You need to find a rabbi in that vein also who will um, give you some guidance in ways of marketing your book. So yeah. those, those two things. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and, and that was that was the idea behind this show to begin with was to help give a platform for authors like yourself uh -huh. and so many other previous authors I've had on the show, give them that, that platform to announce it to the world, you know, outside of their immediate circle of friends and family. And, you know, because right. of course mom's going to buy my book and, uh, you know, and her, some of her friends, but <laughs> how do you let somebody know that's outside of Missouri or uh, wherever it is that you're from at that time? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's right. There's a number of things one can do, uh, and so one really needs to do several of those. You know, a website, an email list, um, and outreach. Outreach is really important. Outreach is a, covers a number of grounds, but one of them, for example, is finding people such as yourself, Jason, uh, who bring people onto podcasts. Absolutely. You know, I, I had a thought here a moment ago. And I had to double check this. I have had men of faith on here previously uh, who were authors. This is the second time I've had one who is a fiction writer who writes in something completely different from their, their day job. Uh -huh. Do you think, and yeah, you, you've kind of touched on this before, but is this uh, the fiction writing? It's a great escape from your day, do you think? Um. I'm going to kind of disagree with that. It's because everything I write, and I've written short stories. I've had several short stories published, and 
you know, when I got my MFA, I, I had to write a thesis of, of a, which was a large part of a novel that I expect to get back to sometime. Everything I write has some kind of content in it that is reflective of who I am as, as a rabbi and as a Jew. Um, the idea, of course, is that it doesn't, it doesn't dominate, but that it's part, it's part of the fabric of the book. Um, so I don't want to say it's an escape or a hobby. I'm pretty serious about this, and hopefully we'll be able to continue, continue working at this. Mm -hmm. it's, it's rather, it's rather a, a kind of alternate form of expression. I get back to what I said before about that, that, that creative Jewish literature called Midrash. Um, that, that is uh, an old Jewish form of creativity that I always resonated with, um, even, even before I went to rabbinical school. So in, in, not to stretch it too much, but writing fiction uh, could be seen as a form of Midrash. So it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's part of what I do. It's become... It's, it's, it's become an important part of my identity. It's not just something, it's not like going fishing. Not to, I'm not criticizing fishing, but it's not like <laughs> going fishing or collecting coins. It's mm -hmm. more, it's deeper than that. Yeah. It's still writing with a purpose. Uh, yeah, that's right. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think, I think the idea of the escapism, I think is something that people outside of belief, a belief system, I think that's how they would relate to it, but it's, that's not it at all. It's, it's like you said, uh, writing with a purpose and still incorporating everything about yourself, your, your faith and your beliefs and uh, everything within it's all still you, including the writing of fiction. Yeah. I, I, maybe, maybe the word everything is a bit of an overstatement, but you know, but any, any writer who's doing something that they would like to think is, uh, is serious regardless of who that person is and what their background is, you know, their, their consciousness, their self uh, flows into the book, regardless of whether the person wants to or not. Um, and, 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 you know, and you can see it. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to say I'm like Dostoevsky because that would be, that would be huge. That would be you know, a great overstatement, but you know, you read crime and punishment by Dostoevsky it's a pretty good novel. Now it's a Russian novel, which means it goes on and on and on and on and on with kinds of writing that doesn't work in American uh, English writing these days. But, you know, there's Dostoevsky on every page. It's not just, it's not just about this guy, Raskolnikov. It's, it's about what Dostoevsky's worldview is. Oh my gosh. So much. There's so much about this. I find so fascinating. And I, I really enjoy talking to you. Where can people find and follow you and, and learn more about you and your writing? Well, my, my website is philmcohen.com. So that's easy to find. You can go to my Amazon author page uh, or just go to Amazon and look the book up. There are 30 some reviews and they're, they're pretty favorable. And some of them, some of them are serious. I mean, by which I mean, if you often go to look at reviews on Amazon, they, they can be fairly trivial, but uh, a lot of people took a little good bit of time to explain what they liked about the book in a way that uh, makes makes you understand what the book is about. So those, those uh, are the ways you can do it. And I'm I'm going to make sure and have links to all that in the show notes so that everybody once they're once they've completed listening to the sample chapter, then they can click that link and hop on over and find out more about you and uh, pick up your books there at uh, Amazon or, or from your website. Great. 
Mr. Cohen, thank you so much for being a, a, such a wonderful guest. And, and uh, this discussion has just been incredible. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, you're a pretty good interview, I have to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> you're too kind. Thank you very much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, it's time for me to hand the floor over to my guest, Phil M. Cohen and his debut novel, Nick Bones, Underground. Chapter One, Meeting Destiny. It was the middle of February, and I was biking my daily five laps around what remained of Prospect Park in Brooklyn. The park, like the world around it, teetered on the brink of the abyss. Economic collapse had devastated New York City, causing a shutdown of most city services, including the subway system, all but paralyzing the city. Much of the same level of disruption rippled throughout the rest of the country. Recovery from what had been coined the great debacle became all the more difficult because of nefarious behavior by our computers. It was not quite an artificial intelligence revolt as much as machines running amok, unleashing chaos among the people who birthed them into this world. They no longer could be trusted to do what they were built for, a trait that felt eerily human. Why bike the park in the bloody middle of February? A reasonable question. Not long before New York City collapsed, I found myself on a table in St. Murray's emergency room under the care of cardiologist Murray Levine, the doc who saved my life. My heart quit in front of about a half a dozen students still willing to abandon the STEM building to study religion across campus. I lay on the hard tiled floor wondering if my time was coming to its uncelebrated end. And if so, whether the heaven I suddenly wished existed awaited my immortal soul, so I might visit with the likes of Abraham Lincoln, Moses Maimonides, and my maternal grandmother. Unless for my great sin, I was doomed to the other place. In that case, I'd run into Richard Nixon and that lousy anti-Semit who sold me a crappy used Oldsmobile in college. One of the students in my History of the Faiths of Mankind class whipped out her phone and summoned the medics who brought me to the attention of the aforementioned Dr. Levine, a nice looking fellow as best as I could tell through his mask. He kept reassuring me, you'll be fine, professor. I rested on his table connected to this thing and that, assured the doctor's healing ministrations had saved me. I was not insensitive to the fact that I had avoided my one business meeting with the angel of death who, upon learning I'd lived to teach another day, took an abrupt U-turn, seeking more effect in the ground elsewhere, his generally being a packed day, in the quiet, and let's be honest, the rapture possible to someone at the moment he'd escaped death, I took an oath. No more poisons masquerading as food. No more cigarettes. No more indolence. Daily would I sweat and eat local, vegetables mostly, and just enough of them. I attempted keeping my exercise pledge indoors. I purchased a sophisticated bike system that offered wind, sound, even aromas, and included detailed virtual reality bike rides from all around the world, courtesy of Google Maps, projected onto a 72-inch screen. But pedaling in front of my giant SIM screen, dressed in boxers and sneakers, did not engage my imagination not even when the bike opted for unrequested junkets to off-world destinations like Mars, courtesy of Google Mars. 
The illusion with high def real time images could not recreate the authenticity and excitement of biking outdoors, the polluted breezes, the ups and downs, the odd smells, the crater sized potholes, encounters with unexpected people and things, the great unpredictability of it all. Despite the increasing collapse of the city's infrastructure and decreasing law and order, I bought a bike and carried on outdoors. Almost two years on, my near-death pledge had become the single abiding feature of my life. Every day, and I mean every day, I dragged myself outside to be among the decay, the debris, and the poisons suspended in the air. As long as there was no snow on the ground and the temperature remained above 20 degrees Fahrenheit, with filters thrust into my nose, helmeted, goggled, my neck wrapped in a wool scarf, swathed from head to toe in Gore-Tex and looking like a fugitive from a ninja movie, every day for 21 miles, I biked the park. That frigid day in February, I met my destiny. It was 22 degrees. A thick gray mist covered the earth like an unwelcome blanket. The rocks, trees, everything was monochromatic. As always, I forced myself into that fog. Pure force of will kept me out there, humping that icon of disrepair ringing the park, always hoping that the exertion would minister to all my needs, help me transcend my grim state. From time to time, the effort eased the gloom and diminished my lethargy. I could look the world in the eye and get on with my day. Chapter two, man on the half bench. At the end of my second lap, I observed an old man sitting on one of the park benches, half a bench actually, the other portion of the overpainted wood and concrete structure having long ago fallen into the void where things go unrecovered. You couldn't miss the old guy, except for the odd jogger, a couple of dog walkers, and two cops in an armored police car tooling the park. No other human being ventured out that afternoon, save for this codger, erect as a yardstick. There he sat, staring off into the cosmos, the unfiltered sun raining skin cancer down upon him. Every time I passed this old fellow, he nodded ever so vaguely toward me. Why should I care about this wisp of a man wrapped in a gray overcoat? My only job was to pump away, doing my best to lose myself in my meditations, my daily moment of private worship, awaiting the emergence of endorphins that would, if they did their magic that afternoon, push out the pain and chill and leave me momentarily energized. Ah, my daily moment of worship. I confess I no longer engaged in the act of prayer. I hadn't for some time. In different parts of my life, prayer, both the act of it and contemplation about it, had consumed me. I retained striking memories from my teenage years of smooth-cheeked boys and men wearing long, unruly beards in various stages of grain, all davening, praying with vigor. They would bow up and down, human engines powering a divine machine, eyes closed with orgasmic power, addressing their Father in heaven with words like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when everything comes to an end, he alone will rule. And every soul praises you, O Lord, and so on and so forth, making these and so many more claims of equal or greater absurdity. No, I prayed no longer, but my act of riding circles around the park day in and day out 
replete with dressing rituals, breathing rituals, rituals of movement, rituals of sight and sound, leading to exertion and sweat, occasionally capped by a meditative mood that when will and grace combined would permit for a couple of hours, this formed a kind of religion, at least comprehensible to my colleagues over in anthropology. In one bundled up mass, I was collectively the rabbi, the cantor, the congregation. I preached, I hummed melodies, I sang, I attended to the great wisdom pouring from my lips. The park was the synagogue and my bike was the pew. I was a solitary multitasking worshiper come leader. And God, always a good question. I finished the ride walking the bike to cool down, enjoying the cardiovascular lift. I passed the old guy again and felt his eyes root on me. He was, I figured, observing me in all my sartorial strangeness. I sought to walk by him and re-enter my own little world, unbothered by elderly men sitting on elderly benches. But instead, his eyes compelled me to halt, turn around, and regard him. He smiled in a toothy and familiar way. I thought he was going to cluck like a chicken, as didn't so many in the city these days, hospitals attending to the mentally ill being nearly non-existent. He leaned toward me. In a tone filled with familiarity, even intimacy, he said, Hello, Nikki. No one had called me that since I was 17, when I dec decreed myself an adult and demanded to be called Nick or Nicholas, or occasionally St. Nicholas. Nobody called me Nikki except relatives or old friends, neither of which was in large supply. I halted and looked him over. Beyond his coat, I could see little. His hat came down to his eyes. His nose bore the scabs characteristic of men and women exposed to the sun's increasingly damaging rays. Loose skin gathered around his chin, reminding me of a turkey that survived one Thanksgiving too many. He was pale as an ancient ghost. His ratty overcoat, once upon a time it might have fit him, hung clownishly down. Above his mouth, a patch of white hair masqueraded as a mustache. Yes? You don't recognize me, do you? I struggled to place his voice in the text of my life, but his words had squeaked out in the tones of old age and disease, masking the younger voice I might have once known. Something familiar emanated from his face, but I couldn't morph him back in time. No, don't recognize you, I said. He bent toward me some more, and in a triumphant tone declared, I'm Shmuley Shimmer, Shmuley's father. You remember me, no? I remembered him, yes. I whispered those words that come when truly surprised. Holy shit, I said. For a moment, the air between us lay still as a corpse. Been a long time, he said. A cliche, yet true. Yeah, we've been out of touch, I answered lamely, for 30 years. Yes, out of touch, I'd say. He looked at the ground as if studying a blade of brown grass or the mud on his shoe. You know about Shmuley, of course, he said, a note of pain thinning his voice. A middling-sized boulder plopped into the center of my gut, and I had to pull hard to breathe. Who doesn't, I said. Your boy's more famous than Al Capone. He waited eight full beats and said, Fame like that I can live without. A faux pas, I realized. Sorry, you must feel terrible about Shmuley. Yes, terrible, but you get used to feeling terrible. The feeling takes up residence in your soul and never leaves. Not used to Shmuley himself. Him no one ever gets used to. 
How can anyone, even his father, especially his father, ever get used to him and what he did? Such a brilliant chemist, and he made that awful thing instead of helping people. Ugh. I placed my bike against a tree and pulled off my helmet. All those poor souls in those hospitals lying like meat in the freezer at the supermarket. They might as well be dead, he said. They'd be better off dead. I can't tell you how many times have I thanked God his mother wasn't alive to see what finally became of her son. She knew about the drug and the victims, but not the end, not the trial and everything else. By then she was, may she rest in peace, fortunate to no longer be among the living. Well, that was Phil M. Cohen, speculative fiction writer, reading a sample chapter from his debut novel, Nick Bones Underground. It was a fascinating read, don't you think? It really brings in your attention when you want to know what's going to be happening next. Click that link in the show notes for more for Phil's website and more about him and to pick up his books. Don't forget to also click the link in the show notes for all of our podcast friends and sponsors alike and hit that subscribe button. So you don't miss out next time when I'm back with a new author, a new book, and a brand new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. We'll see you again real, real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.